Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. and jump it. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hi and welcome to Countrywide. I'm Abby Holter. Today, a Ukrainian dairy farmer shares the reality of farming during an ongoing war. And some farmers are speaking out in response to the recent reckless renewables rally in Canberra. But first, when you go to pick fruit and veg in the supermarkets, how much does quality play into it? Would you choose something that had a bruising or a mark on it? The reason I'm asking is after the cyclones hit North Queensland, Woolworths have brought a campaign into stores to promote these blemished bananas to consumers. Growers say retailer and consumer standards for produce are unrealistic and they're hoping this initiative will be a catalyst for change about what good produce looks like. Lucy Cooper filed this story. Bright yellow with blemish-free skin, bananas at major supermarkets tend to look perfect. But will the recent tropical cyclones in North Queensland shatter this widespread consumer ideology? It takes a couple of years, a few years, to get back on track to where you were. So we recently had a bit of a touch-up with Cyclone Kerrilee. So we um, probably affected our crop by 15 to 20% of our crop. So we actually, one paddock in particular, that was our majority of fruit for the next few months, that was 80% gone. So, and another paddock was affected by 20 to 30 percent. So, overall, it was not too bad. Could have been worse, but I know there's a few other farmers in the Kennedy Valley have had more damage, a lot more damage than us. That's Colvinda Singh, a banana grower in Karakan, North Queensland. Her bananas end up on supermarket shelves. Right now, we're in the packing shed for the bananas. This is a um, typical packing day where um, we grow the eco-organic banana, known as the red tip banana. It's using biodiversity to grow the crop and using less chemicals and fertilisers. So what specifications do banana growers have to adhere to? Specs can be um, the size of the banana, the length. Um, There's a maximum and a minimum size that we have to keep it to. Um, the number of fingers in a cluster, you've got to have a min- minimum of three bananas in one cluster. It can range up to about eight, uh, so no bigger than that. And there's other general appearances like definitely nothing where the skin is broken. That's always a definite no. Ex-tropical cyclones Jasper and Kiralee have left a mark on bananas, leaving them battered and bruised. Woolworths have introduced signs throughout stores in Queensland to help educate customers about why their bananas might look a little different at the moment. But it begs the question, who demands this perfection? Supermarkets say consumers demand perfect fruit, whereas others say it's the fact that supermarkets have imposed standards on farmers and as a consequence, consumers now just expect perfection. For farmers like Miss Singh, it's not a straightforward answer. Oh, it's hard to say, but I'd say it would, would have started with the supermarkets and now the consumers are used to seeing that and if it's not looking good, they won't buy it. So what do consumers expect? Here's Joe, a shopper at the Mackay Markets. Quality, 
Price is probably the second one, but definitely quality. Um, if it looks a bit dodgy and it's been a bit smashed around with packaging, it's, yeah, I'll probably give it a miss and try the markets instead. Um, the quality's just better. It's not just banana farmers who have standards to adhere to. David Richardson grows vegetables in Bowen, North Queensland. He no longer sends his produce to a major supermarket. We used to supply eggplant to Coles, but we stopped doing that because of um, it was just too difficult to deal with them and their standards were so high that it was just unrealistic. For Mr Richardson, providing perfect produce just wasn't realistic. You can do up to three grades. You do a premium grade, a first grade and a second grade. And say for last year, they were really only interested in, in the premium grade because of the price of fruit and vegetables at the time, which is only about 10% of what you grow. He reckons there's other pathways for imperfect produce. And there's another company that they're getting reject stuff that the chains are rejecting and they're selling them in fruit boxes and stuff. That's, that's a great idea and a lot of people are getting a lot um, cheaper product and it's all fresh too but those odd bunches I've heard that they've is such as, as a standard amongst that as well. But what is the solution? Is there one? If supermarkets were to relax product specifications would this actually just lead to an oversupply? From what we've seen um, production has increased over the years and there have been times where there's oversupply and that becomes an issue then when there's too much for um, having that not so good quality there will bring down the market anyway so it's a fine balance <laughs> you can get it right it is uncertain times ahead not just cyclones but extreme weather events we're seeing more and more of them every summer it's heat waves and excessive rainfall missing believes consumers will take notice of Woolworths new signage but thinks the initiative should be applied to all produce to educate consumers on their role in the industry. It's about educating everyone, supermarkets and the consumer. Calvinda Singh, a banana grower in Karakan, North Queensland, ending that story from Lucy Cooper. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Australian farmers face many challenges, but they pale in comparison with the difficulties Ukrainian farmers have faced over the last two years since the Russian invasion. Audrin Daikan is the Milk Processor Association of Ukraine president, and he says some farmers have left the country, while others who remained lost many of their workers to the armed forces, while others are trying to defuse bombs themselves. He attended the Australian Dairy Conference recently and says many Ukrainian dairy farms also produce grain. So the blockade preventing grain exports in the Black Sea are causing huge problems. In Ukraine, we don't have uh, like we have a lot of modern, uh, very efficient dairy farms, but we have like maximum ten which are like specialized on the on milk. Most of the farms are grain producers, and they have also like dairy farm. And the problem for the rest of the farmers is export of grain because of the Black Sea ports were blocked and since uh, September 23 it's deblocked and uh, it goes now. You were saying earlier that just being a farmer in Ukraine you you hate the sound of planes now as well, the the sound of aircraft coming over because of um, things like the the war and so forth. How much has it changed what farmers are doing? But everything has changed so we need to do other things is uh, farmers need to think for example 50% of employees on the farm should be mobilized to the army. So you like you have like 20 men working on your farm 
10 of them in the army now. So you need to think what to do more efficient on your farm, maybe to attract more women to work on your farm. And the problem for the farmer is to sell, because before the war was like we were part of global market and you produce and sell, and now it is not possible as it was as it was before. And of course, many uh, like we don't have like farm itself. Uh, most of Ukrainian farms they in the village. People live in the village. Uh, people who lives in the village they own the land which fa- if they give this land to farmer, and farmer is paying rent to them, and he is uh, like responsible for those people. So if they go to army, he helps them to buy something what they need. If it's in uh, affected territories, they help them to get more food and so on and so on, like social function. That sounds really hard, like a really difficult environment to farm in. Yes, yeah. it's not easy. And some of the pictures you showed today, quite harrowing, right? The, the, the it's not the most horrible pictures, I would <laughs> say, like this. It was like light, very light version of them. And so they were the light ones you were showing? Light one, yeah. yeah. And that's fields that have been covered in mines, it's, we have thousands. Thousands of such fields. Yep, it's a really big, big challenge for Ukrainian future how to demine this, those territories. It uh, will take a lot of time, but it will happen only after the finish of the war. And you were saying fa- some farmers are trying to demine fields themselves. Yes, they invent something. Actually, uh, as uh, farmers, we invested some money into uh, roller deminer. So we bought a deminer in, in United States and like military deminer. And we start to produce such deminers for the farmers, and they can use these deminers in front of the tractors. And it's like a local solution for to help farmers to. It's not demining; it's actually exploding. But it's better to explode the roller roller machines than to tractor or something more expensive. Um, and you showed photos from your industry, the dairy industry, as well of massive dairy sheds that had been bombed or been um, um, damaged severely by the the war themselves how how much of your dairy industry had you lost up to 50 percent we were exporting uh, dairy products before the war now we are importing in in just i think it's like what is for sure that's more than one up to 200,000 cows were killed on the farms and so uh, clearly there, there is a message you mentioned a lot of the farm workers went to go and fight literally for the army to, to, so your country still exists but farms are still needed for food for the country too aren't they yeah, is, that, yeah. is that where a lot of your produce goes now to literally just keep people fed in a war yeah zone? because if you stop production then the economy of the country will die so we need to push it's our as we say there is a front for soldiers and there is a front for farmer it's difficult, it's risky, but if we stop, what, what, what is the risk of the farmer? He risks his money. What is the risk for the soldier? His life. So other Ukrainians, they have more risk than our farmers. And many of our farmers who lost their farms, they are now in military. So we say that until we can uh, help making uh, agricultural business, then we do business because someone needs to do it. As soon as I can do it, I will go to army. So that's the reality today. Ukrainian farmer Audrin Daikan, who is the Milk Processor Association of Ukraine president and also head of the Agri Council Ukraine, speaking with Warwick Long.
There were calls to halt new renewable energy projects at the Reckless Renewables Rally in Canberra last week. Wind and solar farms are popping up across the country, and many are set to be built across farmlands. There's a lot of concern it'll ruin farmers' livelihoods. But it's not a view shared by everyone in the ag industry. Some farmers say these projects might just provide an opportunity to future-proof their properties and produce multiple streams of revenue. Olivia Ralph filed this report. I'll openly say anywhere that we are cut and can prove that we cut more wool under the panels than what was what we cut before. Wellington farmer Tony Inder has witnessed the growth of solar farms across the Central West over the last decade, and he says business has never been better. We run sheep under the panels, under a solar farm, uh, at Wellington itself, about 2,000 sheep there. What we've found with grazing sheep under the panels on countries that we've known for a long time will actually grow more wool and cut more wool of a higher quality grazing under the panels than what we did prior to the panels. He's part of a group of farmers pushing back against the anti-renewable energy activists who are calling for a suspension of wind and solar farms on agricultural land. Fourth-generation crookwell farmer Charlie Prell believes that would limit farmers' ability to future-proof their properties. I've said often, and I mean it, without the wind turbines, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here... 10 years ago, let alone now. The wind turbines have saved this farm from financial ruin. But we ran a farm through the 2018-2019 period, which you might remember as the serious drought and the start of the bushfire consumed eastern Australia. We ran sheep and cattle around the construction of the wind turbines with a few problems but no major issues. And I've said to quite a few people, you just can't do that with a coal mine. Prell acknowledges some members of the Crookwell community had concerns prior to the development of wind turbines in his district. There was a certain level of angst and anxiety from, I have to say, a minority of people in the Shire uh, before the turbines were even built. And I understand that because there was a lot of fear being... um, expressed about what was coming, the change that the turbines were going to bring. Now that the turbines are here, um, and there's quite a number of wind turbines in the Upper Lachlan Shire, but now that the wind turbines are here, I think the level of anxiety about the wind turbines has diminished substantially. But new anxieties are now appearing as renewable projects reach the next stage of development. Planning is underway for the construction of new transmission lines, many of them cutting through agricultural areas. However, Horsham grain grower Susan Finlay-Tickner says working around transmission lines has been a reality on her property for decades. And we've had the transmission lines for about half a century. When, when I've chatted to our farm workers, header drivers, tractor drivers, uh, they, they, they farm around the transmission towers the same way as they would farm around a tree. Let's not pretend that renewable energy isn't making farmers good money today, even during the drought and floods that are impacting so many Australian farms as we speak. Natalie Collard is CEO of Farmers for Climate Action, an advocacy group representing more than 8,000 farmers across Australia. Farmers are getting offered these days $40,000 per wind turbine per year, and you can host 12. In terms of having a sustainable farm, the first thing is profitability and productivity. Well, that allows you both in a big way because it doesn't impact your ability to farm at all. There's a lot of misinformation going around 
and some of that is that we're losing really quality farmland to renewables. We at Farmers for Climate Action wouldn't support it if that was the truth. The New South Wales Agriculture Commissioner stated previously that the total land area to be converted to renewable energy production is around 55,000 hectares. That's 0.1% of rural land in the state. The Clean Energy Council calculated that replacing every coal-fired power plant in Australia with solar farms would require about 0.027% of agricultural land. It's a speck on the map of Australia. So while there are issues to work on, let's work on them, but let's not pretend that it's not a good news story. Farmers for Climate Action CEO Natalie Collard ending that story from Olivia Ralph. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. You're listening to Countrywide. I'm Abby Holter. Soon you'll hear from the couple who saved a rural vet practice from closing. But before that, 17 years after opening, a popular Queensland agritourism destination has packed up and closed their doors for the final time. It's being blamed on low prices paid. With punnets only being sold for $2 or less, it doesn't meet the cost of their production. Jennifer Nichols visited Kalula Berries near Gympie in southeast Queensland, where owner Jason Lewis was both sad and a lot less stressed as he joined her in his blueberry patch. I call them free range because we don't spray them, don't water them. We've got this beautiful little area here where the farm is and everything grows to its best. Um, underground water is about two metres down here so once they tapped into that they just produced and um, you know they produce beautiful flavoured berries. In Kalula Berry's blueberry patch three tonnes of fruit has been left for the birds. No, I didn't pick any this year. The farm isn't open over summer anymore. And the other biggest problem was the supermarkets had them for $2 a punnet or less. So it's not worth the hassle of picking. Always trying to justify what you need to get for your product against what you're competing against, I suppose. It's, it's always a hard thing. Jason and Kim Lewis started Kalula Berries from scratch 17 years ago, growing seasonal strawberries and blueberries. At one stage, they employed 23 staff and ran their farm cafe seven days a week. Tourists from as far afield as Brisbane would head to Woolvi, southeast of Gympie, to pick their own fruit and enjoy homemade strawberry ice cream, cider, scones, strawberry jam and Sunday paella sessions. But now they've decided to permanently close their popular agritourism business. It was very, very hard to do. It just become too much. We were popular, um, probably to the point of killing us. We really probably needed to expand, and unfortunately, you know, that takes a lot of money and support. And unfortunately, you know, you, you don't get much support from local councils these days. So we just thought, well, you know what? If we can't go forward and we can't put our best out there, we'll finish up. And it was wildly successful. Yeah, it was too successful. We, we'd envisaged of opening a little cafe at a farm that my wife and I could stand and serve and have this nice little lifestyle, but it become a demanding business. We would get two to 300 people every Sunday at least for lunch and breakfast. A lot of work that goes in. So not only do we have a farm, which is also a hard business to run, a farm alone, we have a cafe, which was also hard to run, and we also did other products as well. So we sort of picked a business that was hard to run, but we did it very well, I believe. And you know, it's very sad that we have finished up. Successive floods, hailstorms and drought had also taken a toll on their stress levels. I didn't really think much about it until probably yesterday when I sat down and they're saying about you know all this rain coming I'm thinking you know what it's not going to affect me I have nothing to worry about. So it's been the first time in a long time where I've actually uh, listened to a forecast and not have to think through my head the hundred and you know, different tasks that I have to do and what will happen if I don't do them. So the rain and the weather does play a huge part in farming. That's a lot of stress lifted. Oh, absolutely. 
I just can't believe actually how much stress, even though we're only a small scale farm, but our whole farm evolved around what we grew. So it was the key to our success. Mr Lewis says the costs of running the business had increased and he didn't want to put prices up for loyal customers. We've forged a lot of friendships over the years with people. Um, we've seen you know, little kids come at zero age and come for every birthday. You know, We've had people come for every Mother's Day. And I really understand we've left a big hole in the community, but it just wasn't something we could continue with. Respected chef Matt Galinsky expressed his dismay after hearing his friends were closing their business. I honestly did nearly cry when I found out. <laughs> it's one of my favourite things that I wait for each year to come into season is the Kalula berries. And so to me it was really sad. But he understands it's time for the family to move on. You know, when you look at how much work is involved and how much expertise even, Jason has so many years of experience doing it that that's why he was able to make it work so successfully. And he worked his butt off. They both did for all those years they were doing it. With not just growing strawberries but running a cafe and everything else that they were doing while they were there. Mr Lewis has also stepped down as the president of Slow Food Noosa. He remains a great believer in the international slow food movement, which celebrates fair, clean and regenerative local food production. It's hard to run a small business and most of our small farmers are part-time doing one job and working a full-time another job. And there is no huge support for these people, you know, and, and it's very hard to create something or grow something or make something and sell it and, and make a profit. So it, it is a very difficult um, a difficult job to do. But stepping down from slow food, you know, I'm still going to be involved. Um, I love slow food and I love, I love the producers that we have in our area. Um, so I'm moving out of the area a little bit, but, you know, we're still, we're still going to support here. Amrita Park's meadery owner, Andy Coates, has stepped up to take on the position of Slow Food Noosa president. Oh, they closed permanently. Super sad about that. The way that those guys were just gangbusters seven days a week. I don't know how they did it for as long as they did. And much loved by the community. So, yeah, the whole community is very sad to see them go. But those guys are moving on, on with their life and got more adventures to have. And, yeah, hopefully they have a bit more time to do it with. But, um, yeah, Jason was gold and it's going to be hard to... Um, following the footsteps of him. Mr Lewis says he and his wife had received hundreds of Facebook messages, phone calls and texts from people reaching out to make sure they and their family were OK. But, you know, everything is fine and some of the messages are really, really heart-string yeah, stuff. So I'd like to thank everybody who's come on our journey with Kalula Berries. I probably remember nearly everybody. It's been a business where you have to enjoy people and I have enjoyed everybody. So thank you, everybody. Jason Lewis from Kalula Berries. Just over a year ago, the only veterinary clinic in Longreach in Western Queensland was set to close. Farmers and pet owners faced a difficult and costly future as the nearest practice was nearly 400 kilometres away. To keep the doors open, a local farming family bought it, a diversification move they'd not only never considered, but friends told them to run a mile from. Landline's Pip Courtney has this story. Last year, at a local cricket match, in a comp he helped revive, the owner of Longreach's only vet clinic asked James if he and his wife Manny would buy it to save it from closing. I said, well, don't be silly, that's crazy. And then a couple of months later, it was getting a bit dry here, and we thought, well, we might just have a look at it. Just a vital business for the region, so it was important to try and keep it going. Friends were shocked they'd consider buying it, given the chronic shortage of rural vets, the profession's high suicide rate and the couple's lack of experience. I think they were probably right in thinking that, but um, I was up for a challenge. 
Does the phone ever stop ringing? Never. <laughs> Never. Their first year has been a whirlwind. Manny quit her relief teaching job to run the practice and they had two weeks to recruit vet staff. And it really was the steepest learning curve ever. So to think that it was my second career I wasn't looking for. <laughs> and then uh, I had to learn very quickly. But um, it was great. It was a challenge and it wasn't easy. Dr Daniel Stanky is their locum after spending a year here a as a vet previously. The next clinic is Charleville, Hewington. If it did close, it would put so many people out and so put so many people in really bad situations if, it, if there was no clinic here. <laughs> You know, a vet bill is expensive enough without having a 600-kilometre round trip. Some people perhaps wouldn't bother with the immunisations or the checkups. And it also means if your animal had an accident, there's no one to help. There's no royal flying dog service. They need it. Well, yeah. <laughs> Considering the amount of animals that we've got, it would have been very difficult because we love our animals. The clinic's patients are big and small, adored family members work and sport partners. You can just be in the clinic all day looking at cat and dogs and other days you can like, better go look at a horse with a wound. You do have a lot of routine stuff like prick testing, bull testing, but then that's broken up by emergencies. And how swollen was that leg when you first found it? Probably a quarter of the size yesterday yeah. to what it is today. The region's many horse owners are relieved the clinic didn't close. Time is of the essence when horses injure themselves or become ill. They never seem to do these things in halves, so having a vet close by is absolutely critical. Dutton lost a fight with a fence. Too lame to travel, a vet was there within hours. You can't ask for more than that. If I get sick, I don't think I can get into a doctor that quick. Dr Stanky's former clients are now his bosses. And uh, he was telling me how much he's changed it and vamped it up and upgraded everything. So, yeah, I was keen to come back for, just to have a look and, yeah, see how it's going and help James out pretty much. Good on him, 100% good on him. Because it's obviously not that common for non-veterinarians to buy practices anyway. That's going to be full on, but he, someone needed to do it. Getting vets to move to Longreach has been difficult. Flexible hours and housing has helped make the remote town more attractive but the big incentive has been salary. Did you have to pay more? Absolutely, yeah. I think vets are underpaid. Like, if you look at them, uh, you know, compared to the medical fraternity, I think they are just undervalued, underpaid, and I think they're extraordinary. We pay well. We have to. After spending a week with one of the vets, who had 12 after-hours calls, James realised how critical supporting vets was. Absolutely exhausted. We realised fairly quickly that our role was to protect the vets and the staff from burnout. Did you feel like it was a real responsibility to give those vets a good work-life balance and to preserve and protect their mental health? Oh, definitely, yeah, because I think probably outside the vet profession, probably people aren't quite aware of how high that pressure is and why the suicide rate is as high as it is. Dr Max Woods is a FIFA vet. He flies in Monday, flies out Friday. What will keep Dr Woods in Longreach longer is this. The practice's stables are being turned into an equine reproduction centre. There's plenty of horse flesh up here, expensive horse flesh and high quality, high genetic horse flesh, so if you have the right facilities, the right staffing, yeah definitely there would be opportunity for it. There wasn't a horse in sight at Isis Downs, owned by CPC, one of the country's largest privately owned cattle producers. 
Dr Woods fertility tested 400 bulls in four days. For station manager Andrew Cochran, vets aren't just for emergencies. He's in touch weekly. They're an integral part of our production cycle throughout the year. Live calves on the ground drives profitability for us, really. To know that we're using bulls that'll do that for us, it's critical. Expanding services is James's mantra. So when he heard the nearest dog groomer was half a day's drive away, he bought a grooming trailer. It was booked out two days later. His best news to start the year, though, is a couple, both vets, have arrived this month. It means the practice can cover more ground than ever. Yeah, it's quite exciting, especially with the pressures of carbon and efficiencies coming into the beef industry. We'd love to be able to support large corporates or, or family businesses with, with our amazing vets. That story from Landline's Pip Courtney. That's it for Countrywide. You can hear all of these stories and more at abc.net.au slash rural. I'm Abby Holter. Bye for now.